Exodus chapter 24. Let's just read the first three verses of the chapter. Now he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. Moses and the children of Israel came out of Egypt. They crossed through the Red Sea. They made it through the wilderness. And eventually they came to Mount Sinai. Now, all in all, they would spend about a year at Mount Sinai. This is fairly early in that year when they had come to the mountain and God had appeared on the mountain, not in any visible form. It's not like they saw the outline of a human being or a face or a hand or anything like that. But they saw the presence of God manifested in a mighty fire, in trembling earthquakes, in the presence of the smoke and the lightning and the glory of God, which was so evident. And they heard his voice as he spoke to them from heaven, giving them the Ten Commandments. Well, after that initial speaking of the Ten Commandments from heaven, the people said to Moses, Moses, we've had enough of this. We don't want to hear any more of the direct voice of God. You speak to God, hear what he has to say, and come back and tell us. And that's what basically encompasses chapters 21, 22, and 23. Moses went up on the mountain, God spoke to him, and God sent him back down. But the last thing God says to Moses when he sends him back down the mountain is, you're going to come on back up here. You're going to come on back up here. And this time, bring the elders of Israel and bring some of the high officials, Aaron, your brother, and his two sons. You come back up in a moment. But before he would go back up on the mountain, by the way, you saw it right there, verse 1. Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel. That's the invitation to come back up. And Moses and these 70 others are going to come back before we leave our text this morning. But I want you to understand, before Moses came back up, he went back down the mountain. Verse 3 describes how Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all these judgments. Everything there that is in chapter 21, chapter 22, chapter 23, he gave them a better view than ever of who this God is that they said that they would serve and what kind of personality and what kind of moral requirements this God had. They wanted them to know this is the God that you are being called to serve and to worship right now. And how did the people respond? You saw it right there in verse 3. It says that all the people answered with one voice, and this is what they said in verse 3, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. Does that seem a little bit glib? Does it seem like it comes off the tongue just a little bit easy? Does if God comes to you and I this morning and he says, okay, this is the first and the greatest law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you say, yeah, no problem, I can do that. When a moment's reflection says that there hasn't been a day in our single life when we have loved God as perfectly as we should. But it just seems to come a little bit easy, doesn't it? Sometimes to trip off our tongues. Sometimes it's so easy for us to make a light and superficial commitment to Jesus Christ. 
Jesus didn't want that kind of commitment. Jesus spoke back to the people who would be his potential disciples. And he told them what he tells us today. Count the cost. There's something in this for you to take a serious recognition of. But that's what the people answered. They said all the words which the Lord has said we will do. So it's almost like this as if God says, okay, let's do it again now thinking about it. And that's where we come to verse 4. Now, before we read verse 4, many times I stand before you and I invite you to let the Bible be like a movie that runs in your mind. Because these are real events. These things really happened in time and space. And so I invite you to do that all over again. I want you to let the movie run in your mind as we read the text starting at verse 4. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And the Lord, excuse me, and Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you, according to all these words. What a dramatic scene. First, Moses writes down all the words of the law. Then he gets up early the next day because it's a very important day. Moses had written the words of the law and what he was going to present before Israel was a covenant based on God's written word. That's the first thing I want you to remember. God's covenant is founded upon his written word. It wasn't going to be left up to human recollection, to the creative nature of our memories. God says, no, I want you to put it down for us in writing. I want it to be written down because this is a covenant that I am going to make with the people of Israel. Sometimes I kind of like to, you know, hold stuff back in the message and spring it on you at the end. But there's no point in doing that this morning. Look, this is a pattern for a new covenant, a better covenant. I'm not calling you to come to Mount Sinai where Israel was. No, I'm calling you to come to Mount Zion in Jerusalem where Jesus was sacrificed. So I'm calling you to come to a different mountain, to a different covenant. But there are parallels between the way that God established the covenant with Israel and the way he establishes his new covenant with us. And here's the first parallel. He does it based on the written words of the Lord. And he does it with us collectively as a group. Let me put it to you this way. God did not make an individual covenant for each individual Israelite. There was one covenant. And the same is true today under God's new covenant. Let me see if I can express it to you this way. Because I'm kind of searching around to see if you can get what's on my mind and what's on my heart. Here's a way to express it. You have a personal relationship with God. 
but you don't have your own private agreement with God. You come to him on the same basis that we all do the new covenant that's been offered to us in Jesus Christ. Now, why am I belaboring this point? Because I think that there's more than a few people in our culture today, in our church culture, if you want to call it that, who think that they do. They have their own private agreement with God, that they can just sort of edit the way that they want. And here's the places where they like to edit. They like to edit around the areas of sexual morality. Okay, I know God commands everybody else these things about sexual morality, but me and God, we got our own private agreement. I think not. Or how about this? You know, I know what God talks to everybody else about, you know, their finances and their resources and their material things and how they're to honor him with that. You know, I get all that. But me and God, we got our own private agreement. Really? So I would say that you're under a misunderstanding if you think that that's how it works. Personal relationship, yes. Private agreement, no. We're all under the same covenant before the Lord the same blessings, the same requirements, and God calls us to that. If you want to think of it this way in your own mind, there you are sitting at a table with God, and it's sort of a negotiation. It's time for you to negotiate your agreement with God. Now, some of you, you're brilliant negotiators. You make your money on this. You make your money on big business deals, and you've been very successful with it, and God bless you for that. But here's just kind of how it operates. God puts forth this covenant, he writes it out, and he slides it across the table to you, and you take a look and you go, well, let me answer back and change a few things. And you know what God says on the other end? He goes, no. God says, this is a take it or leave it kind of covenant. If you don't want it, reject it. If you'll cast it back to me, then cast it back to me. But you can't edit the terms of the covenant. Here it is, take it or leave it. I offer you to be cleansed of your sin to be forgiven of your guilt, to give you new life in this life and in the life to come. I promise to adopt you into my family, to give you the righteousness of God and to set my spirit upon you in a way that will utterly transform your life. Now, you have to surrender unto me and you have to live a life of loving trust in who I am and what I've done for you. There you go. Now, you can accept it or you can reject it, but you can't edit the agreement. So that's the first thing we have to see there. It's written down for us. But secondly, look at this on verse 5. It says that they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Covenant was made in the context of sacrifice. I assume there was some sort of platform. There was some kind of place where they did this, where a large assembly of the nation could see what was going on. And something like this happened. They brought up the oxen onto that platform with an altar before the nation. And they sacrificed those oxen. I don't mean to get weepily sentimental over this, but those oxen didn't do anything wrong. Those oxen were completely innocent. Yet their lives were being poured out in the form of the blood being poured out because a death had to happen. A substitute had to be offered. That's the second thing. First, it has to be written down. Secondly, there must be the death of a substitute. Third, look at it right here in verse 7. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. The covenant was made when God's word was heard and responded to. 
And our covenant with God is based on his words and on his terms. And then we give him an intelligent response, just like they did in verse 7. Did you see what they said in verse 7? All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. This was their offer. They took the covenant that God entered into them. And I can't read this without just thinking what a solemn, holy moment this was. Because right now, at this point, Israel was setting its destiny for future generations and for future centuries. They entered into this covenant with God. And then finally, verse 8. Look at here, and this, this blows my mind. It says, Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. I don't mean to offend anybody here this morning, but I have to speak frankly. I have to speak with you, the text being true, as if this really happened. And so the description I'm going to give in just a moment is going to sound kind of gross, but I I have to say it. Ladies and gentlemen, there was blood everywhere. Do you know how much blood there is in an oxen? I didn't know, but between services, Pastor David Wally came up to me, and he said that he looked it up somewhere. There's about five gallons of blood in an ox. It's about 10% of the animal's weight. When they would bring the ox up on the stage and cut its jugular vein and let every spurt of the heart bleed out as much of the blood as possible, there was an enormous amount of blood because it wasn't one ox, it was ox in. I don't know how many that is. And without sounding too grotesque, and I'm sorry if it offends anybody's ears, but I'm just trying to give this as, as straightforwardly, but perhaps as gently as I can. There were buckets of blood involved. Buckets. And they would take this huge quantity of blood, and they would take half of it and pour it out before the Lord, because the life of the animal had to be poured out. There was nothing magical about the blood. We're not dealing with magic potions and things like this. That's all superstition. No, but the life of the animal is represented by its blood. Leviticus chapter 17 says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And we understand that immediately, don't we? Blood pours out, it's as if life is pouring out. And so the life of the animal, that innocent victim, first poured out before God, half of it at the altar. And then what does Moses do with the other half? He brings it before the people. And I can only imagine what it looked like in my mind's eyes. But with some sort of apparatus, I don't know, I I think maybe he had like a, a rag or something on a string that he soaked down with a bloody rag and he sprinkled it over the people. Could you imagine such a thing happening on a Sunday morning? You'd never come back again, that's for sure. But could you imagine being in that assembled group and there you are and some splatters of blood touch your forehead. You can feel it. It's still a little bit warm from the animal. And there it is. And it's marked. The blood of the covenant has marked you and you've received it. You don't immediately wipe it off because you sense there's something sacred about this. There's something sin atoning in it. I'll lay it down. Just the, the, the fat fact of it all is that there is no permanent atonement from sin from the blood of any animal. They could have sacrificed a thousand oxen and 10,000 sheep, but none of those were perfect sacrifices because they were all imperfect animals. But the Son of God came to establish a new covenant, a better covenant, and he offered a perfect life before God. 
And so as meaningful and as beautiful as this was for Israel to receive the blood of the covenant upon them and realize that they were in connection with God based on the blood of sacrifice. Do you realize what a better sacrifice that you have to look to? Do you realize that you have to look at what Jesus did for you at the cross? And do you realize that the impressive significance of it as Jesus sat with his disciples there on the night he would be betrayed, the day before he was going to be crucified, when he sat with his disciples at a ritual meal that was their celebration of Passover, and he held up a cup before them, and he said this, it must have blown their minds. I bet they got goosebumps when they heard Jesus say this. He held up a cup before them, and he said this, this is the blood of the new covenant. And he said, it is shed for the, for the remission of sins. This is the blood of the new covenant. You remember the blood of the old covenant. It was sprinkled upon the people, the blood of oxen sprinkled upon the people. But now God invites you and I not to have it sprinkled upon us, but for us to partake of it, for us to eat of that meal, to drink of the cup. And if you do it in faith, your sins are forgiven. If you do it in faith, your your, your new life in him is secure. If you do it in faith, there's a blessing of the spirit of God. Not that there's anything magical in the bread or the cup, but there's something beautiful in the presence of Jesus Christ in and around what he communicates to us in it. It's just a beautiful, powerful thing. It's the foundation for the beginning of our new life in Christ. And you know it's the foundation for every day in Jesus, is it not? It's not something that you just do one time and then forget about. No, it's every day. So our dealing with God through the new covenant, it follows the same covenant pattern. First, the words of God are read. Secondly, a sacrifice must be made. Thirdly, there's a receiving of God's words. Then there's a receiving of the blood of sacrifice. I want to prepare you right now. Because later on in in our service and in a few moments after I finish, Pastor Nate's going to come on up and he's going to lead us in this taking of what Jesus did for us on the cross, on the bread and the cup. If you'll receive it in faith, it means everything for you. It means that you've entered into holy covenant with God. Well, I mean, we could almost pause and just say, whew, that's enough. But our chapter isn't done. After you have this super dramatic cutting of the covenant between Israel and God right here in Exodus chapter 24. Now, in the second half of the chapter, remember how it started out? God said, go down, but then do what? But come back up. Now they're going to come back up. Verse nine. Then Moses went up also in Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet as if it were a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hands. So they saw God and they ate and they drank. You know, I love to stand up in front of you week by week and explain the Bible to you. But I have to say, there's passages that I come to from time to time. And I say, what? What exactly happened here? I don't really know. I don't really know. They met with God in some unique way. God said to Moses, Moses, bring 70 of the elders of Israel. 
Bring your brother Aaron and his two sons. So 74 people in total. They go up and apparently at some halfway point up on the mountain, they gather together and God says, I am going to reveal myself to you. Verse 10 says, and they saw the God of Israel. Now, I know when we read that, we're like at the edge of our seat. Well, what did they see? What did, tell us what they saw. They didn't see any outline. They didn't see any profile. They didn't see any angels. They didn't see any throne. They didn't see any, you know, shadow of his presence, anything like that. You know what they saw? They saw his footstool. That's all that they could bear to see. Just like they're looking down from a heavenly perspective. And God is a throne in front of them. And what do they see? They see his feet. But that's glorious enough to where they can't take any more of it. It's like you had this amazing experience. I'm waiting for that book to be written, actually. The person who has an amazing experience with God. And what did they see? I saw his footstool. But it was enough to blow my mind. They see it in the context of the sapphire and the blue and the beautiful setting that we see often described in Ezekiel or in Isaiah, these blue and colorful hues in heaven. We see that they saw some kind of paving stone. It says there in verse 10 that they saw the paved work of sapphire stone. Now, that's some fancy paving stones, don't you think? By the way, I think it's interesting. When they were slaves in Egypt, they made stones, no doubt that were used as paving stones. Now, out of Egypt and on Mount Sinai, when they meet with God, God shows them a different kind of paving stone, a heavenly paving stone. But as spectacular as this was, there was something, I don't know what the right word is, lacking, incomplete, not fulfilled for this in the nobles. Look at this, verse 11 says, but on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. As glorious as this experience was, there was something incomplete in the encounter. This wasn't a face-to-face meeting with God, so to speak. Later on, Moses would experience God in a more personal way than even the elders did here. But don't take away from it. Verse 11 says, so they saw God. It was an amazing experience. They saw God, and I think God gave them this experience so that they would trust him and that they would trust Moses. They definitely saw something, but it was something that couldn't be described. But I like this, what it says at the end of verse 11. Did you notice this? It says, and they ate and drank. Isn't that strange? God is here in his magnificent presence, and we see his footstool manifest right before him. All right, who's hungry? What do we got to eat? No, actually, this was beautifully fitting, and I'll tell you why. First of all, because it was a common practice in the ancient world at the establishment of a covenant to have a covenant meal with the parties involved. And you could say that this was a covenant meal. By the way, isn't it special that God has given us a covenant meal? But there's another aspect of this, too. Eating and drinking are entirely normal daily activities. You've already eaten something and, and, and had something to drink already today, and you will later on today as well. Entirely normal, everyday activities. And what I find amazing about this is that God met them in this amazing, transcendent, look at the glory of his footstool, that's all I can stand to see. God met them in that context, and then he said, I want to marry that together with the entirely mundane God wants his presence 
to be present in all the mundane things of your life. And he wants the glory of his presence to be touching those mundane things and giving them something special. You know, I'll express it to you the way that I think a a very gifted teacher of a previous generation named F.B. Meyer did. He noted that as these eating and drinking are entirely normal activities, he, he observed this. He said this. First of all, some eat and drink and do not behold God. In other words, you live life on the mundane level, but you never connect with God on the higher level. And then he said, some behold God, but they don't eat and drink. Oh, there you're off kind of in the spiritual la-la land all the time, but you just don't seem to connect to everyday life. So there's some people who take one extreme, other people take the other extreme. F.B. Meyer said, no, the third course is the one that we should endeavor to live with. We behold God and we eat and drink. He's real to us. He's powerful to us. He's present with us in the daily activities of life. Yet nevertheless, he's with us. He's with us in this very special way as well, in this way that we experience. Now, look, ladies and gentlemen, I'm all for spectacular experiences with God, and I hope that you have some. I hope that you do. I hope that there are times when God just blows your mind. I hope sometimes it happens as we meet together and we seek God in the context of worship. Or or maybe you're hearing a word from God. There's just something transcendent that happens in your life. Or, Or maybe it's some other context altogether. But I'm all for these great, wonderful experiences that we have with God. But doesn't it really matter how it translates into the daily life that we live? There's something wrong with the person who skips from amazing experience to amazing experience to amazing experience, but it never seems to touch the way that they eat and drink in everyday life. Well, that should be you. That should be I. Experiencing, experiencing these great times with God, but yet it connects to our everyday life. All right, in just the moments that we have left, let's see what happens when God calls Moses up on the mountain. Now, after this, apparently... I'm trying to visualize this in my mind. Maybe the 74 men, you know, Moses included, maybe they all went about halfway up the mountain and now Moses is going to go up further. Or maybe they went up a ways and then the other guys went down and now Moses is going up. Something like that is going on here. Verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there. And I will give you tablets of stone and the law and the commandments that I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up to the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and her are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Oh, you just wait. We're going to read more about what happened to Moses. But do you have this scene in your mind? These emblems of God's glory, the smoke, the fire, the burning mountain, 
It's like this. The mountain's on fire. Do you want to go up there? No, I'd rather stay away from the mountain that's on fire. But God called to Moses and he said, come up to me on the mountain and be there. His assistant Joshua went up with him at least most of the way. But while the nation of Israel was assembled at the foot of the mountain, Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders of Israel, I don't know if they were halfway up or if they went back down to the mountain, but they were supposed to manage the people of Israel. I'm really struck by the phrase there in verse 14. Did you see that in verse 14? He says, indeed, Aaron and her are with you. Hey, people of Israel, you'll be all right. Aaron and her are with you. Now, I don't mean to spoil the story, but how did that exactly work out? We'll see as we get it on in the following chapters. But don't miss it in verse 17. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. For 40 days and for 40 nights, they didn't have Moses He was up on the mountain receiving from God, but they could see the smoke and the fire and all the emblems of the holy presence of God there on Mount Sinai. Verse 16 says that he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, even though it didn't seem to be a welcoming place, even though it might have seemed frightening. God said to Moses, you come close to me. Other people stepped away, but God said to Moses, you draw close to me. And I'll just conclude on that very note. Does not God speak the same thing to you, dear individual soul? Other people may draw back. Other people may see these emblems of God's glory and his presence here among us. They may say, no, I don't want that. God looks to you and he says, no, you come close to me. To me, in all of this, God said to Moses, you can draw near. I'll keep you safe. I'll reveal myself to you. I'd like to think that some of that blood of sacrifice was still splattered upon the garments of Moses. But whether it was on Moses or not, it needs to be upon you. You can safely draw near to God and be comforted in his presence. If, if and only if you'll come by his covenant that Jesus Christ offers to you. We bring before you now the perfect opportunity for you to take hold of that by faith. We're going to distribute pieces of bread and a cup by which you can connect to that covenant. I pray that you'll do it by faith, that you'll listen to what Pastor Nate has to say carefully, and that this will be a holy act of covenant and worship that we do together before God. Father, you've called us not to draw near to you at Mount Sinai, but, Lord, to come to a better mountain, Mount Zion, to a place of just men made perfect. And so we receive that together now, Lord. We ask that you would prepare our hearts for for you to present yourself among us in a wonderful way through the bread and the cup, and that you'd stir our hearts in faith to receive it, to look away from self, and to look upon Jesus. Lord, some of us, perhaps for the first time here today, for many of us in a continuing way that gives you honor, help us to do it, Lord, and to bring you glory. We pray this. In the name of our Savior, 
our elder brother. And Lord, I'm bold enough to say it because the word itself says it, our friend, Mm. Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.